Sound check, sound check. Yay. <laughs> 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 Hello and welcome to episode 360 of the Crate and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight, on the 5th of March 2021, I am joined by Marsh Davies. Hello. Alex Wiltshire. Hello. And Tom Francis. Hello. 360 seems like an auspicious number, but for no good reason, really. It is. No, no scope. If, if, if we were Microsoft, mm. this would be our second podcast. Mm. Yeah. Well, and we'll follow this up with Crate and Crowbar 1. <laughs> <laughs> also, if, if the podcast fails at any point, you can just wrap it in a towel. True. <laughs> <laughs> Always true, actually. <laughs> no, yeah, I mean, we didn't have to wait 360 episodes to know that. Just waiting for the, someone with, to finally find a towel. Um, <laughs> Gently smother us. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. When will we escape? Almost coming up on a podcast for every day of the year. I was going to say, imagine what a miserable year that would be, but it's March 2021. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so we've got some news, we've got some internet news from the internet at least about video games. Um, should we begin with um, some sad news if you are me circa late 2018, I guess? <laughs> it's just specific. It's just... Uh Artifact. Um, Artifact Valve's uh, foray into the card game CCG genre is is coming to an end. They've they've done a blog that basically states that the kind of Artifact 2.0 beta has not garnered enough interest or sustained enough of a player base to justify continued development. So that version of the game is being renamed Artifact Foundry and released for free alongside Artifact 1, effectively. Uh, and all its cards and every single part of it will just be available on Steam for free to anyone who wants to play it. But otherwise, this like journey ends here, which I think is kind of a shame, because I can't remember what I said about Artifact when it came out, but I know I went to bat for it a lot. <laughs> a lot. And what effect did that have? None at all. That's also... Um... They've also made the existing, the, the old artifact completely free as well, right? You're like, everyone has mm -hmm. all the cards and you, they, yeah. you can't buy them in any way. Um, which is, at that part, I was interested in because, I mean, A, I think this is a, a, the nicest way to wind something down. Like, you don't often see a company do this where they just, like, cut off all way for them to make revenue from it and still keep it running and, like, still play it. Everything's free. We give up. <laughs> um, but I was wondering about, like, I remember the original artifact, like, buying cards... You know, the fact you had to pay for the game and then also buy cards was a big part of it. And uh, does that, ju does just having all the cards from the start, is that going to change the game? Is that going to make it feel, you know, worse in so, some ways? Or I think, I think, what has happened to my memory? I should remember this. It wasn't that long ago. But I, I, I was in the Artifact Beta Alpha, from, I think as, as one of the very earliest stages. And there was a point where all the cards were just available for like testing purposes. And that was like the best the game was, in my opinion. And I think I think I probably uh, issued some kind of now deeply shameful apologia for its attempted kind of like <laughs> arch business model at the time. And I was wrong about that. 
I think the thing that killed that game was being a CCG where kind of market forces were also expected to be part of the game. You know, mm. like it's a really good game. It didn't need to be hooked up to that particular experiment to do with the Steam marketplace that Valve has been kind of, or at that time at least, had been sort of taking various different kinds of stab at in terms of what players will buy and sell to each other for real money. Um, I can understand that. It is effectively an attempt to recreate the conditions of the Magic the Gathering secondary market in a video game. And yeah. like, I was thinking about this recently in terms of people's very righteous shutdowns of crypto art that like the lack of scarcity is the advantage here. It's not a problem to solve, you know? Mm -hmm. And so um, I think maybe that was always a kind of doomed libertarian expedition of some kind, which I appreciate makes them sound like Arctic explorers that don't share, but nonetheless. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think that um, the foundry version as it's now called um did that fail on its merits or was it just so cursed by the rep that it was never given a chance do you know what this is a shameful admission for someone who really went to bat for that game i never played it i like i really i kind of like really liked artifact and also stopped playing it and got the email day one of artifact 3.0 and read the first couple of blog posts and didn't really understand the changes and therefore didn't feel that pull to go and relearn a game that I liked, basically. Hmm. Um, so I can't comment. Well, that probably answers it, really. Like, because mm-hmm. I didn't, I, as someone who wasn't super into Artifact, but sort of found it vaguely appealing, sort of like something like this could work for me. I also didn't play the revamped version. So if it didn't get either of us, then who did it get? Yeah, and I think I think it was a very earnest attempt to, to, to find a new kind of destiny for that set of systems and those set of ideas. But... I think the original artifact was a fully realized idea for a card game. It was just a really complicated one. And I, I, you know, I don't, I think that's necessarily going to be niche. I think the other side of it is like, I think maybe those games, and maybe this is a little bit of a, it has been traditionally a bit of a valve issue generally. They're a little arch for what the audience actually wants out of them. A lot of the time, like, you know, the success of a lot, because they, you know, Artifact in many ways also had its lunch eaten by the kind of then emerging um, auto chess genre, you know, including Dota Underworlds, which was kind of like, you know, um, as far as I understand it, a much quicker turnaround compared to Artifact, despite kind of occupying yeah. the same kind of space. Um, and auto chess, obviously, there's, there can be enormous depth to auto chess, but auto chess is, is far more transparently like a big strategic slot machine in the way that CCGs can also be. And I think they attempted to create something wholly skill-based and deeply complicated and that only, you know, with a kind of, you know, level of complexity that would make it appeal to people who had felt like they had mastered other more complicated games in that genre or, the comp- or at least other complicated games in that genre. And what people really wanted was something with that kind of like, maybe I'll win, maybe I won't. I'm just going to kind of spin the wheel a few times and see what see what happens, which is a big part of the appeal of like, you know card games and and similarly kind of random games and so yeah doesn't this doesn't surprise me and i think and I, as you say tom i think the the way they've kind of dismounted from this is about as classy as it can and i kind of hope people see its value when they can come along and just play with every card and build a deck and well know, that, that old paul it used to have of you know i, th- I think the identity that it 
that it took on was, oh, it's that game where you have to buy all the cards and it's a real ripoff and and, mm. and it's really annoying. I think that knowing that that's all free, there's a good chance that it might actually find a brand new audience. Like, I don't know. I, I felt, yeah. weirdly enough, on reading uh, Valve's uh, post about it, I kind of felt quite positive. I thought, oh, that's that sounds like it has a good, you know, not even an afterlife. Like this is the next, just, just a new chapter for it. Yeah, I think you could be right. I mean, I think, and maybe that's the other thing is, I think, um, I think Valve, it's interesting. I think Valve at the time considered the financial side of it, the buy-in, the value of cards to be part of, also part of the game. That's kind of what I was gesturing out with mm. the kind of leaning into the market thing. And I think they have, like many companies, consistently failed to consider the emotive Im- impact of cost on humans like it that's the kind of game you can design if like um disposable income is just a part of your life you know like wouldn't it be fun mm. to stake some money in this way um <laughs> yeah. a person says being paid pretty well to work <laughs> in a tech company on the west coast um and I think it's that thing of like really not anticipating how that goes down with with audiences elsewhere, and a lot of other companies in the similar kind of space mask the actual cost, do a, do a much more robust job of pretending it's not as expensive as it is to kind of really get into one of these games. I also thought that um, I read some stuff, some interviews with Richard Garfield after he left Valve um, about this, and I found him to ve- to be very unhumble about it. <laughs> he was very he had. Exactly, an attitude I I very much um, advise game designers against when I see it in like uh, newer game designers. Obviously, he's extremely experienced, but uh, that defensiveness of like when when your idea doesn't work out and people don't play it right, you blame the players and not yourself. Like he had a lot of things of like, oh, I can actually mm. prove that this is you know balanced and it's not. People are saying it's like this, but they're I can prove they're wrong with the numbers. And it's like, no, I think if, if people don't like it, you can't prove that they do. <laughs> right, you can't play a game wrong really you know um well yeah there's always it's always something to do with the game Mm. on that note actually uh, i don't want to segue off artifact too quickly if people have other other points to make about it but there has been i think one of my favorite instances of stop it stop it you're playing the game wrong i've ever seen recently (laughs) if uh, if i could tell a brief story um which concerns uh destiny 2 but i promise you i'm not going to go off on one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> you know how marty gets oh, I, I can sense it i can sense it a couple of miles away my arms are folded Pouting. already sinking back into my chair with a frown. <laughs> right well so um i was having a, a chat with uh with a friend a little while ago about like what's the point of, of destiny 2 um is it to engage with the the gunplay and like bungee 30 seconds of fun over and over and test your skill and, you know, master all these different combat encounters and enemy types, or is it to uh, furnish a paper doll character model with um, more and more better and better stuff effectively? And the answer is obviously the latter. And like, I think as soon as you have like a a treadmill in your game, the game is going to be about the treadmill regardless of, you know, whatever kind of, relative sort of arch statement you tried to make about the purpose of you know the well that's just there to reward you for your engagement with the other mechanics i think players will will seek the quickest and simplest way to avoid playing the game in order to just get the things the the kind of ephemeral rewards whatever they are and um last week um uh one of the things that's most pointed about this in destiny and i think it's a really 
um, is a mode called Trials of Osiris, which is its kind of high-end PvP mode. And it's supposed to run like a weekend tournament. The goal, the goal here from a design point of view is that players buy in with in-game, you know, resources um, uh, with a ticket that lasts a weekend and you play games against other people who've bought in with their teams of three with a ticket and you rack up wins and losses. If you get three losses, you have to reset your ticket, which doesn't cost you any more, but you have to kind of go back to the beginning. And the more wins you get, the better rewards you get when the ticket ends. And the best possible thing you can do is get seven wins and zero losses, which will whisk you away to a special location for mega prizes. And the goal is it's supposed to be this very tense, um, almost kind of like, you know, tournament, tournament format weekend thing. And since the outset of Destiny 2, it has been variously present or removed from the game because players won't stop breaking it because <laughs> they will do absolutely anything to avoid engaging with it in the spirit that it's intended, like anything. <laughs> and the and most of the time, this manifests as like a fairly, you know, fairly obviously malign things like cheating on PC, particularly like a lot of the piece, the, the market for paid cheats for destiny comes from this. And then also that's kind of has a symbiotic relationship with the marketplace for paid carries, like actually paying a, a, a teenager, a cool teenager, to, to, to carry you through a couple of trials matches <laughs> to get you the good guns. So there's a secondary market that springs up and all of that stuff you can, as a, as a, like a game developer, you can look at and kind of comfortably be like, well, hmm, that's a EULA issue. Well, that's a, that's a community, that's a, uh, you know, a security issue or a moderation issue or a, you know, or one of these things that can be kind of brought in. This is obviously a violation of how the game is intended to be played. Um, uh, and then, uh, but it's been an ordeal for years. Last week, the mode just gets abruptly taken offline for initially, no one really understands why. Um, and then it comes out that uh, about a patch ago, Bungie added a really sensible feature, which is if you get disconnected from a trials game, you can reconnect. That makes sense. And also, um, for the sake of um, you know uh, allowing people sort of flexibility as a quality of life thing, you can switch characters. Um, what then happened is... Um, the Chinese Destiny community discovered a way to basically implement a kind of um, crowdsourced, um, infallible and leaderless match fixing system using those two mechanics. So what happens is um, people load in their teams of three and two of them um, wear a particular emblem, which kind of displays to the other team at the start. Um, to indicate their willingness to participate in this scheme. And this this emblem was chosen, it wasn't intended this way because the a, a symbol that's on it looks a bit like the kind of Chinese shorthand for lol, like, you know, laughing out loud. Um, when this happens, um, th this is like a really efficient bit of quick communication. You see a team that has two of these logos, that means they're participating in the scheme. The third person who doesn't have the logo on but is in the team is the leader. The two leaders add each other on Steam and use Steam's um, system like of, of like random number generation, little toys and the chat thing, to roll a dice. And the winner of the dice roll will be chosen as the winner of the game of Trials of Osiris. <laughs> so, and then what they'll do, the team that is designated the losers will stay on those characters. They will wait patiently while the team now designated the winners will switch to a different character, which is the one they're planning to win on. They, the, when they're back and everyone's loaded in and everyone's happy, everyone else, will, the, the, the losing team will just jump off cliffs until the game is over or quit. <laughs> and then they will just requeue. 
And uh, after having banked their win on their winning character, the other team will switch back to their kind of, uh, you know, uh, just like kind of initial characters and they'll requeue. And if they, if you encounter a team that isn't wearing the emblems and therefore isn't participating in the scheme, you simply quit um, because you were planning to lose on this character anyway, so it doesn't matter. And if you encounter the team that is wearing the emblems, you already know that you both understand it. So you just add on Steam, there's no language barrier because it's simple as free Steam friend request and then a dice roll. And there is basically no way that over a sufficient period of time, it doesn't result in everyone who wants to getting the best possible result out of the tournament. And so it's really elegant, like it's a bit of like, um, I don't know, it's not really game design, but it's like how to solve a puzzle, right? The puzzle is you yeah. have all these players entering a random system that is going to match them randomly because people have tried match fixing before, but it's to do, it's always been to do with like VPNing to a region where the game is currently, where the, most of the player base is asleep to maximize your chance of matching with a friend you've already agreed to throw the game to or something like that which is very chancy and, and prone to error. Whereas this, uh, it literally can't fail. Like there's there's basically no way to get around it. And and the amazing thing is Bungie can't fix it without removing <laughs> quality of life features that have a very good reason to be there. Uh, well, there's, there's probably other changes they could make. And the other great thing about it is, you know, it pretty much takes the bottom out of the cheats and paid carries market. Because why cheat? Why cheat? Well, you could just wear a special hat that indicates I'm willing to enter a match fixing scheme. <laughs> like they can't ban your, you know, if you cheat, you could get caught and your account could be, you could be suspended. No one's going to suspend you for just happening to wear a particular hat that indicates you're willing to <laughs> add someone on Steam and happen to roll a dice. Like I, I love it. I think it's great. And I think they should leave it there because honestly, I think if they were honest, they would know that like, well, what are they protecting? They could only be protecting the sanctity of those rewards. And they were fucked the moment cheating became rampant. So yeah, I don't know. I, I really like it. I think it's one of the funniest like little kind of community efforts to completely circumvent a developer's intent I have this, ever seen. It really reminds me of that. Um, you've seen that comic of like the dog bringing the stick back and saying throw, and the, the only yeah. to take the stick. It's like no, no take, only throw. <laughs> it's like rewards, <laughs> no, no fun, only rewards. <laughs> exactly. I think about that honestly. That comic. I think about it all the fucking time. Like that, <laughs> it's weird. That Mean Girls trying to make fetch happen are like two of the most useful like <laughs> touch points for like explaining why a game design idea isn't going to work. Like you're either trying to make it happen too hard, or you the audience just wants what it wants. There's a there's a, there's a have you ever seen the cat variant of that comic? No. Um, which is um like a cat and someone's hand is approaching it and the cat scowls and like hisses and goes no pet only pet. <laughs> that's the other one um and i think that's the you know yeah profound design wisdom to be found there i think might do it. does does yeah. the match fixing degrade the quality of the experience of people who want to play the game legitimately because i mean you said people quit out if they if they don't want to have an honest game does that is that a real problem so it started to spread because people people figured out this was happening and so and so european players were vpning to hong kong because even if they weren't trying to, even if they weren't going to try and participate in the scheme, they would encounter enough people who were who would quit immediately and therefore give them easy wins. So I guess yes, it does affect the it does affect the experience of people who log in and go, I would like a balanced game of competitive Destiny Two against worthy opponents. I would like to I would like to become uh, excited and stressed by the stakes of high stakes 
sci-fi wizard combat. Uh, I think there's maybe like three of those people. Um, everyone else is like, I would like the gun with the cool eye of Osiris on it and the new armor that makes me look like a beetle. Like that's everyone else, you know? Because <laughs> that's the thing. Wants to play. I want to play the game, but also in that moment, do I? You know, <laughs> this is a, a total tangent. But um, since you mentioned auto chess earlier, it reminded me there's a game coming out soon on, on PC called Lazy Chess, which is it's already out on mobile, and I haven't played it myself. But I've uh, the idea is fascinating, which is it's just a chess game where uh, instead of you having free reign of what move to play an AI figures out what the two best moves are you could play, then only offers you those two. Hmm. So you just choose between what are what the AI considers to be the best move and the second best move, although it doesn't tell you which one is which. Um, <laughs> and that's that's kind of, uh, it sounds really good in theory. And then I, 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 so I just heard from other people that it, for a lot of people, it doesn't really work because the, the reason a move is good in chess is not because of what it gains you this turn, right? It's not that it mm. takes the most pieces or it, or it does something. It's because it's going to lead into some other thing that you're going to do later down the line. And so A, I mean, that's kind of the challenge of this is, is you've been shown this is a good move. Now you've got to figure out why it's a good move. Like why, would the, why is the AI suggesting this? What is it leading to? But then also because the strength of a move is based on what you will do in future based on your new position, you don't have any guarantee that the AI is going to offer you what you plan to do in response to this. Like you think, oh, my, my rook is up here. That's going to really let me wreak havoc up, uh, up behind the enemy ranks. But if the AI doesn't offer you that as one of its two options, then you can't do that later. And so you don't have that like trust that this move is even going to work, which I thought was a fascinating like game design problem. Mm, that is strange. Have you, it, seems, it sounds like the opposite of 5D chess multiverse time travel. <laughs> yes. Uh, you see, which is I have like what... It. I tried. Um, I apparently I was just checking Steam. I apparently tried for 103 minutes, but that is <laughs> like, has any of the others played this? No, nope. Uh, it is a chess game where, like, and I'm going to misremember this because it was about a year ago that I tried to get into it. It's a chess game, but every time a move is, you have the option. You have several options to time travel, so you can play a piece in the same timeline that you're currently on. Or you can go back in time and play the piece to like a previous game state, which creates a branching universe where the game is played out differently. And then every time it's your turn, it might be your turn across ultimately like 16 or 17 different parallel timelines. And your goal is to win in all of them or one of them. <laughs> uh, it's it's like, it's like the, the best and most playable thing about it for me was like, it has a series of like chess puzzle type things to solve, which just about start to chip at like, um, you know, teaching you what this means. And I, I fully anticipate that there are people whose brains work in such a way that they can play this, but I found that it was like, oh, this is a fascinating game for AI to play against one another in some sort of like battle for dominance or something. But like, um, maybe not something a human can do. And I actually really like this idea of like just two decisions chess. That sounds mm. optimal. <laughs> Don't solve that problem. Just let me pretend. <laughs> yeah. Let me pretend. <laughs> well, in theory, like if, if you're looking at a move and you think it's good because it leads to this later cool situation, um, as long as the AI is also suggesting it for that reason, then you will be offered the, the opportunity to take advantage of it, right? Because that's if it thinks hmm. getting into that position is a good move, then it's also, it will also think taking advantage of it is a good move. 
but I, I know myself and I know that I would always have some fucking harebrained idea of like, I'm going to do this weird thing and then I'd be slapped down by the AI saying, no, that doesn't make any sense. You <laughs> just need to chill out, go with the flow, you know? I mean, actually, yeah, now this makes me think, now what I want is like, I play chess, but I just have like an Android co-pilot who just tells me what it thinks <laughs> and I can have an argument with it. <laughs> how about this? How about, how about like a chess roguelike where... Rather than offering you two, where they're explicitly like the best and second best, every turn the game offers you like five things, which are like good, you know, all the full span of, of options. There's a bad choice. And the goal is just to get to the end of the game, like it, like a deck builder, basically, like where there are explicitly <laughs> like wrong answers. Um, would that be good? Probably not. But, you know. There is, I that- did actually play, um, I did play a, a roguelike. Um, turn-based game about moving pieces on a board where the moves you could make were cards you were dealt and if you didn't have the card to make the move you wanted to make you just couldn't do it um and it, i think it kind of worked as far as i can recall i can't remember what the game was called but um is this is this so, genre called so check building because <laughs> <laughs> if, it, if it's not if it's not it should be <laughs> <laughs> uh bennett foddy uh the designer of Quop and gurup and getting over it with bennett foddy um he says, so you know, I don't know if you know this, but uh, it's uh, for chefs, it's like a, a rite of passage or a, or a mark of, of skill to make a really fucking good omelet. Like no matter how fancy a chef you are, you have to have your take on the omelet. Mm. That, that, and when someone wants to judge you as a chef, that's often the, the thing they'll, they'll test is how good of an omelet can you make? Uh, and it's not because an omelet is very difficult to make. It's just because there's, you know, uh, doing the basics with style um, and with your own touch is, is a mark of a, of a good chef. And Bennett Foddy says, chess is that for game designers? Like every game designer should have their version of chess. <laughs> You've got to do your take on it. And his version is speed chess, which is, it's like, I think it's a 64 player game where you have like 32 versus 32 <laughs> and all of it is real time. You just make a move as fast as you can think of it. <laughs> You're on two teams and it's just complete chaos. I think every game designer should be um, compelled to design a mid noughties cover shooter. Yeah, <laughs> cool. well, for the yeah. Xbox 360. Yeah. Yeah. It's the pinnacle it's, of the art. It's Gears of War, the omelette of games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, um, what have you been playing, Chris? Oh, oh wow! You, you, you fucking it's nipped you in fucking, there. You did. I like. I like stood up to stretch my legs off the host's chair, and I've just plonked right back down. down in your lap. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Alex, if you're going to ask like that, I'll tell you. Okay. I've been playing a game called The Game. <laughs> Will you? <laughs> For a moment there, it didn't seem like you would. I mean, <laughs> he's, he's, he's tricky, Alex. Sometimes he doesn't react at all. Incredible. Um, I have been playing uh, a game called Hellish Quart. Um, oh, yeah which um, I heard about last year when it was announced. And then Marsh reminded me of its existence this week. And that was just on time for me to have an opinion about something on this podcast. I'm very grateful for that. So Hellish Court is a fencing game, uh, 2D. Well, it's a 3D game, but it's a 2D fighting game format, effectively, um, that um, feels sort of distinct, in distinctly modern in some ways, particularly because yeah, I think there's been you know an evident interest in simulating sword fighting lately um and its technology is very modern it's it's physics based um with um a view to realism and all of its fighters are fighting in uh real 
you know, uh, European sword fighting styles with appropriate weapons. And it is a combination of um, very, very detailed and, and, and very kind of uh, effectively translated mocap. And I believe uh, a physics engine that is capable of kind of weaving in um, some procedural animation and, and things in order to kind of make sense of how bodies and, and swords collide and stuff. Um, in addition to that, though, it also reminds me a lot of a much older game, which was made in a much different way, which is Bushido Blade. Hmm. Um, the fighting, the PlayStation era sort of samurai fighting game. It is similarly lethal. And I think that puts it in a little family with Bushido Blade, with Nidhogg, actually. Very different game to Nidhogg. But the same, um, but like all of these things are expressions of the same like human, you know, combat form, which is something that is... Um, you know, actual one-on-one sword fighting is is more about sort of tempo and reach and footwork than it is about combos or, um, you know, special moves. And sword fighting is probably one of the most abstracted. You know, if you if we were ask, ever asked the question like, what aspect of human experience gets abstract, what, what aspect of human experience gets abstracted the most when it gets put in a video game, and yet always appears in video games, like sword fighting, would definitely be one of them. Um, and so these sort of realistic depictions actually have more in common with each other than I think it might be initially obvious. Like, like Nidhogg, it's a game about spacing and knowing when to dare to make a little stab or a, a slash, um, and when to keep your distance and, and, you know, the drama and stuff comes from pushing your luck. What's really, um, interesting about it is like how extremely lethal and pretty opaque it is. So there's no health bar because you don't really need one. If someone is bleeding, probably hurt. If they have died, they've died. And those are basically <laughs> the two settings. You can get tired, but that is physically shown on your character. Um, and um, it's really, you know, uninterested in in kind of any kind of gamey layer beyond beyond that. Um, like there's a, you, you know, there's um, there's quite a few moves, but the physics element introduces this element of sort of kind of chance to what can happen. So like you can hit someone with a blow that just sort of like catches, pushes their sword up and then slides past their sword into their neck and they'll start to die. But maybe in doing that, their, sl- their sword just sort of slides into one of your lungs. Now you've both died. <laughs> and that's what we in the sword fighting business call a draw. Um, <laughs> um and and those and and like it's it's a uh it's a brutal thing to watch like i, I play a lot of mordhau and mordhau is a very silly very cursed game about screaming 4chan nerds with bad avatars like um sundering each other into many little pieces in dual servers um this is a much earlier game for many reasons but it's um it's 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 depiction of what it's like to be hit with a sword is quietly worse even though it's less graphic so yeah. like you can you know there are instances you can you know it, you have like high attacks and low attacks and then higher high guard but it very much depends on which kind of weapon you're holding and you block automatically when you're at range when you get close to each other you no longer block automatically well you no longer sword strikes don't really work anymore because you need a certain to be a certain distance to to really hit someone with a the sword there's a minimum range and when you're in that range, you just kind of punch and kick each other. But you can also try and like slap someone's hand out of the way um, or grab them. And if you grab them successfully, 
you kill them immediately. Like there's, if you get grabbed during a sword fight, the other person will kill you. Like there's no, there's no getting out of that unless you're very quick. And similarly, if you bat someone's hand out of the way, you can maybe chop the hand off. Um, but that's about as graphic as it gets in terms of that kind of like dismemberment and stuff. But instead you have these um, like cuts and slashes and things that very quickly end fights um, that feel horrible <laughs> to watch. <laughs> like they, like, the, the the sound effects aren't really that over the top and it's not that the characters are like audibly in pain or anything but there's a real like oh, fuck, to you know this exchange of blows being followed up by like i don't know just a long sword cutting across someone's face and them falling backwards onto their ass holding their like completely ruined visage <laughs> um it's a lot like yeah descriptions of people getting killed with swords in game of thrones sort of type violence where it's like a flash of steel and then your nose has come off um there's something uh, about the way the procedural animation reacts to you know being skewered with a meter of steel it uh you know you can tell when when a a rapier goes through somebody's spleen they sort of curl up like a dying spider and sort of spasm on the ground and it doesn't need a lot of blood for that to be really deeply ugly you know yeah the, the the death animations or the like the death just animations injured, you know yeah well they vary like that's one thing that's clever about it like if it was clearly a lethal blow they die but if it's like um like uh you know just a uh, a maiming blow or something yeah. the character occasionally like sits on the ground and seems to beg for their life like but in this sort of voiceless wibbly procedural way it's weird mm. have you I played it much I- yeah, I found it very, very unreadable, um, which is, I think, mm. sort of maybe part of the point in a way, uh, that it doesn't have the the very obvious tells that most fighting games have. Um, I, I don't think I'll be able to play it, <laughs> it's, <laughs> is, is the headline. I, I think it's also worth stating like, how early in early access it is. So um, it's out in early access, but that really just accounts amounts to games against either another player who is sat with you like same screen um multiplayer or um a sort of survival mode against the ai which is pretty rudimentary at the moment um if you go to the multiplayer online multiplayer menu it just gives you instructions for using um steam whatever steam's sharing mode is you know where you can like effectively stream a game to someone else and then stream their inputs the other way so if you have a good internet connection, that's an option, but it's 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 early enough that the devs just put a tutorial for using that Steam feature to kind of um, effectively fake multiplayer, essentially, or fake online multiplayer. Um, there is, and there isn't a ton else to it other than, than just that mode. Like there's, um, did you click the cutscene button? Marsh. No, I didn't. No, what is that? So if you click story, it just plays you the opening cutscene of what will be like the story mode. And if you still got it in, installed, you should watch that. Okay. Um, but just for the, um, it's not a compelling argument for narrative being a focus of this <laughs> game. I think I don't want to be mean about it because it's like it's it's it, 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 it like there's um, the characters I, I quite like. There are this kind of like quite vividly drawn cast of like. Um, sort of like European murderers of various kinds, really, um, <laughs> from a kind of um, sprightly fencer to like a big old dude with a scimitar. Um, and um, 
but they are voiced in the the trailer and sorry in the in that in that cutscene and it's it's a it's a wild ride. You're not going to be able to guess what accent each of them has from their initial <laughs> appearance. Oh, really? Interesting. <laughs> yeah, but the big the big dude, I don't know why, but he's a cowboy. <laughs> um, <laughs> okay. And like and the um, I think he I think it's a Polish character. I think. Um, where he gets confronted right at the end and just replies in like thick Jason Statham. And it's like, okay. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) So it's, it's, it is, it is definitely OP. I am enjoying it though. I I, I kept playing and I I think, I think there's definitely a game there because I, my first couple times playing and the survival mode, I would get to like six duels before losing and then I decided mm. to try and learn the game, and that worked, and I got to 15, which yeah. um, I think shows that there's something to learn. It's not just random, although at the start it felt very random. This is, the thing is, there's there's a real tension in the in the game design there, and having played it, I'm no clearer as to how they've resolved it or if they've resolved it, which is that obviously there's an element to which these interactions between people holding swords are physically modelled, and there is a trueness or at least apparent trueness to the nature of that physics that's going on and yet the game suggests that uh different people holding very different weapons are also evenly matched in some way Mm. and i don't really necessarily believe that you know somebody wielding a, a the blade of a teutonic knight would really be evenly matched against somebody with a rapier or you know vice versa I, I think they would be end up being very asymmetric so I, I don't quite know how they've well i don't know where they faked it basically in order to in order to I think, make these more kind of competitive i think the automatic block is where they faked it because like one thing i quite like about it is that the characters have like different body types and sizes like the fence is really little and the you know some of the heavy weapon people are, are really tall but the the thing that feels abstract to me, even with the rudimentary experience of fencing, is the bit where you, with the with the you know with the epee, you just you know kind of passive, just just kind of directly block like a heavy overhead swing with a big heavy scimitar looking thing. Like I don't think you would just stop it, you know. For example, right. like I think it would be a very different sort of thing. I think that's where the level of abstraction comes in. Mm. That's a, I, I yeah. don't think I'm I'm versed enough in either fighting games or swordsmanship to be able to tell uh, where these things have been tweaked or faked. But is there some sort of thing in the in the sense of realism that makes it important to you that there is you need to believe that it's rendering the a spy hander the effectiveness of a spy hander versus a dirk kind of accurately? Like well, because I don't you you probably wouldn't have going into a mo- many other fighters with that kind of attitude no 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 i don't I, it's, it's not it's, it's not a complaint it's it's um it's not that i want that uh it, it to be realistic it's just i can't tell where the the line is being drawn and that makes it quite difficult for me to read and then anticipate you know what what's happening right. in the game i think i would say as well like it's worth maybe pointing out the the weapons aren't that different to one another they are there are some obviously fairly significant differences but it's not as wild as like a two-handed, you know, a pole arm over here and a dagger over here. Like it is a game about the the various one-handed dueling swords of different, you know, cultures and martial traditions. I don't think there's anything in it that isn't a sword. 
that you hold in one hand, for example. So it doesn't feel like wildly off that they're balanced against each other, but there's definitely mm. some abstraction. So like there are no there are no Zweihanders and there are no Dirks. Basically, we're all in longsword territory. Nobody rocks up with a cannon. That's how I play it. <laughs> DLC. <laughs> Literally, the first thing that happens in the in that cutscene though is someone points a gun at someone else, which changes oh. the stakes of the whole game. <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't seem a wise thing to do in the very opening cutscene. <laughs> Uh, well, you don't have to fire it. It's fine. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I, I like it. I think it's very niche. And I think um, it's, it's sort of squarely in, in my interest. It's something I will dip back into, I think, as as its development continues. Because uh, it, it certainly like looks great. Really good cloth physics as well. Really good, you know, just uh, believable people who do, I think... Each of them has like a little, I just won this fight thing they do, often while the other character is like writhing around on the game, spasming because they've just been stabbed through the chest. <laughs> and it does make them all look like assholes, but they're all really distinct in a way that makes them all like really distinct characterful assholes. And I think that's something that can be hard to achieve with both mocap and procedural animation. So to, you know, to then have these moments of real personality is also cool. Hmm. What you been playing, Alex? I think um, Marsh and I have been playing the same game this week. Uh, I've been playing Loop Hero, which, um, as we're recording this, came out yesterday. It came yesterday? I think it was yesterday, wasn't it? Maybe. Yeah. I played it first. Yesterday. My sense of time is... is we're not going to go back in time with the publication of this podcast, so whatever <laughs> happens, the game will still be out. <laughs> and uh, it's a it's a roguelike uh kind of auto kind of auto clickery kind of a strategy sort of a rpg game which actually feels quite familiar when you actually play it um i've been enjoying it marsh have you been enjoying it qualified yeah (laughs) (laughs) i think i think you should explain it more because i don't want to (laughs) so uh loop hero um you uh, control, well, you manage uh, a character <laughs> who walks in a circle on a, uh, a board, a map, a board, um, and on this board appear enemies. Uh, your character automatically attacks them, um, uh, goes into a little sort of fight scene, uh, goes, uh, t- attacks them, uh, exchanging blows until uh, one of them dies, usually the enemy, and then continues the walk in the loop. Um, at the end of, there's a little gauge for the time of day. Uh, when the next day comes, uh, you get a little health boost. Um, when you when you complete a whole loop, you return to your uh, camp, like a fire, like a like a campfire um campfire? and you get a, <laughs> a larger boost of energy uh health then um and at that point you can choose to uh return to your kind of base your settlement end your run um you generally don't want to do that because you're fundamentally going around and around and collecting um resources um which you'll take back to your uh, settlement to upgrade it um uh that's the basics of it but each battle um, will drop two different types of things. Um, they will drop uh, weapons and armor and other equipment that you can put onto your uh, your fighter in order to upgrade them. Um, and that is very important. And they will have different effects. 
So like if you are the warrior class, which is what you start out as, um, they will have things like counter, uh, which gives a percentage chance to, um, to, to, to hit stuff back when you get hit, uh, to regen health um, a per second value. Uh, what else? Um, uh, evade percentages, uh, uh, magic damage, uh, being able to hit vampirism, all, vampirism which really mm. rewards health back again off hits, and so on and so on and so on. And so you're kind of constructing a build as you go along. You get a lot of items. It feels quite Diablo-like because you're getting a lot of items, lots of magic items. You get kind of legendaries and kind of exotic, you know, you know, grades of each level um, weaponry. Um, uh, and so you're constantly tossing up, what is my build? And your build will probably change enormously during a single run. So you might be focusing on an evasion one and then suddenly find you get an amazing piece of gear, which is really good at re genning health because it has vampirism and health regen so now everything you want is is like that um or you're flighty like me and just try to have one of everything and do really badly as a result um the other type <laughs> of item that you get are well it's kind of conceptualized as cards uh they are um things that you can place down on the board um there are some of them you place directly onto the path um, and they, when you walk through them, um, will usually grant you kind of little kind of resource pickups as you go through, but they will also allow certain kinds of creatures to, uh, sort of enemies to spawn on them. Um, usually at sun up at the start of a day or at the end of the day, I can't remember, anyway, at, at specific times. Um, there are also uh, buildings and things that you can put around outside of the bounds of the path, um, such as mountains and stones. When you put these down, uh, you'll get boosts to your health. If you can put down uh, a stone adjacent to either a mountain or another stone, it will give you more health. Um, if you can put stone and um, uh, mountains in a three by three block, um, you will get a great big mountain and a huge dose of uh, health um, and other resources uh, that goes into your pack that you can take back to the, to the um, settlement. So you're also thinking very hard about placing things carefully. There is one um, uh, thing called a treasury, and a treasury you cannot place down adjacent to anything you've already placed down. Um, and if you place down things adjacent to that once it's down, you'll get bonus items, uh, um, a random bonus item. And when you can surround it by with other things uh, that, that come off these kind of these enemy fights, uh, you'll get a big bonus of stuff. So you, lots of adjacency bonuses and all these kinds of things. Um, some of them are quite subtle and some of them are unlocked um, by, uh, by upgrading your settlement. You can build um, buildings there which will grant you new types of cards, uh, which can basically go into a deck that you can set at the start of a run. Um, uh, and one of those things, uh, one of the early ones that I unlocked was, um, I can't remember what it's called, but uh, you can place it next to what's called a grove. And a grove is like a foresty sort of thing that you place directly onto the path. Uh, you put this thing that I can't remember the name of, uh, you can only place them directly adjacent to one of those, but off the path. And these um, will kill any enemy when, as soon as they drop to 20% of their health. And I felt really clever with this one because when 
you're sort of you're walking around and around this loop, um, and a gauge is filling up that's just by the the time of day gauge, and this is the boss gauge. And when that reaches the top, a boss will spawn on your campfire uh, point on the loop. Uh, and when you get round to the boss, you'll do a boss fight. And um, I've won once. Um, but, and I've died quite a few times against it because it's quite tough. So you're basically just setting up your character, trying to boost it as best you can in time for the boss fight. Um, and I thought, hey, hey, what if I put a grove right next to the campfire and then put this thing that I can't remember the name of right next? So its area of influence is on the campfire and therefore the boss fight, which means that if I can knock the boss down to 20% of its health, it will instantly killed, be killed. And it fucking worked. It fucking worked. And I was really pleased with myself um, because I would have died otherwise because uh, it were, I was very close to death and I managed to take, take it down to 20% on my last hit. So that was good. Um, so there's lots of strategy there. And, and uh, But it, what it ultimately means is that you're playing... St- two games at once. Um, one, the kind of Diablo-like build your character as you go along style game, kind of, you know, sort of muddling your way through and taking opportunities that come up. And then you're also playing this uh, puzzle game about placing things down uh, that are randomly dropping in order to maximize their benefits. Uh, there are loads of loads of sort of little synergistic things like... There's uh, these crystal things that I've some building unlocked for me, which if I, I can place them down directly next to my path and then a meadow type, if I put them within their area of influence next to them, uh, I will get more health, uh, doubled health for each of those meadows when it, when the next day comes. For instance, that probably was pretty garbled to anyone who's played the game, but there's loads of stuff you're thinking about. But there's... there's that's the game, I think, Marty. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, there's also a meta layer where you're, I mean, these are sort of uh, expeditions that you're doing. And uh, at any point, if you die or if you just want to get out, you can scarper back to your campsite, which you eventually build up. And the more things you build at your campsite with the resources you've got from your expeditions, the kind of better starting situation you have for those expeditions. And so you're sort of grinding uh, in order to improve your campsite so that you can basically unlock variety in the individual expeditions. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I... Go on, sorry. I found it very beguiling at first. I, I, I mean, I really like... Uh, I really admire the way it's put together. Like, the, the just the conceit of the loop. I mean, you're sort of... It's sort of like an uh, an RPG where you're exploring a landscape, but instead of exploring it, you're actually placing the things that will challenge you. Yeah. So, you know, you unlock a card which spawns enemies, but you need to fight enemies in order to get loot. So you place the, you know, you, and you're on this constant tension of, well, obviously I need to place these these badass enemies in order to fight them and get their lovely resources, but you don't want to put too many because then obviously that becomes an actual challenge, yeah. which you might not. Be <laughs> I'm going to put some vampires down here. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Yeah. It's going to be a good time. <laughs> oh no, there are I... vampires. <laughs> <laughs> me sowing, me reaping. Uh, um, but yeah, I, I really like the way you stack up geographical resources to give you buffs. I think that's really, really cool. Um, and the way 
because you have a limited uh, space in which to place them, the the way that you you need to place them to get your uh, adjacency bonuses needs to be th- thought through a little bit. Uh, and um, I like the way the, the the loot stats stack. I like the way that you slowly get this emerging build from any single expeditions. Uh, um, but having played it for a few hours now, I have to say the, the 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 pace of it is is feeling quite slow. Like the number of meaningful decisions that I'm now making uh, seems to be too few to keep my attention. And I know I'm sort of in a grind where I just need to get my campsite up so I can basically unlock variety in the expeditions. But the the speed at which I'm gaining resources to boost my campsite feels very meager. Hmm. Um, And I just kind of, I can see where the end point is. I can see in the distance, oh, there's there's a distant decision that I'll get to make in an hour's time. And I just think, well, why can't I just skip to that, you know? Just make the decision, because uh, between now and then, I, I mean, I, I know you can uh, chop and change and create different builds, but I found a relatively, maybe not in the optimal way, but it's a reasonably pro- productive way to accrue resources during an expedition with minimal risk. And I'm just going to do that now, like, and it doesn't really matter what the game throws at me. I'm, I, I, the choices that I am going to make are already set in the future, and I don't feel like any high level decisions are going to change the course of that expedition unless it throws in something new, which it does occasionally, but not nearly frequently enough. I mean, it's to the point where it's almost an idle game. Like yeah. it would be very, very easy to automate. Uh, you could automate your entire playthrough of a single expedition with a single if-then-else statement, I think. <laughs> um, and it's... but 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 you have to be attentive because you need to be placing cards that you're getting and, and equipping loot. But just, you know, if, if you know that you're going to go for a regen build and you'd basically be mad not to, I, I think, then there's no real choice going on there. You just look at a new item and says, does it have regen? Then I'm not going to use it, you know, if it doesn't. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's weird. I, I don't know where it's... Maybe it'll unlock some new stage of the game where I feel like I'm being asked to interact more Uh because I, I really love the idea. I love the, the, the neatness of the execution and I like the art and everything else, but it's just not asking quite enough of me which, to keep me engaged. I which think. Um, uh, uh, class are you using most? I haven't unlocked any other classes. Oh, yet. haven't only, you? I'm still using the warrior. Oh, yeah. okay. Well, um, I don't, I think there, so there are two classes, uh, three, three classes. Um, the next class you'll get, I was probably be the, um, uh, the the rogue, is it called a rogue in this? Right. It's like a where it, the 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 uh, equipment that you can put on to the rogue is different. So it's no shield but two weapons. So hits really hard. The bonus, it like the the bonuses and things are different. So there's a critical attack. Um, lots of things. There are two gauges. It's like there are loads of different mechanics going on. Like it, it plays quite differently and i haven't completed a run with it because i had to run down to dinner tonight and um, before completing it and it didn't save my place but um in this one you don't get many drops of equipment as you go around the loop until but you do get these kind of goods you get this bag in your inventory and it fills with the num- this number of stuff goes into it as you as you defeat enemies and then when you complete a loop or is it the end of the day i haven't quite figured it out or is it when you a village which is another thing that you can put down on the on the thing no, like, so i should go into 
why I sound so sort of full of indecision because it's actually part of the game as well. But um, uh, you suddenly get a, a bat, like your entire inventory fills up with stuff and you suddenly get this glut of stuff that you can uh, stick on the stick on your character. It feels very different. And there's an XP thing and I haven't completed the XP bar yet, so I don't know what that does. And actually there's loads of weird things that happen as a result of things you put down. So what I didn't realize until reading about it was that um, the reason why harpies appeared suddenly out of the blue is that um, I'd put down a certain number of stone tiles on the board and that only happens then. And so there are certain things that... They become a mountain, don't they? Uh, Sorry? They kind of coalesce into a... They coalesce into a larger mountain, which is where the harpies are said to That's roost. right, yeah, yeah. And uh, and I think there's another thing that happens, that's when the goblins turn up. So there are these, mm. your actions will lead to certain things. And once you know that, then, you know, you may or may not, what because you, you can keep cards in your, in your just sitting there not being played, if you like. And you actually, I think you get items if you, if you overfill your hand. Um, so, you know, you don't have to play stuff. Um, so there is, I think there are more decisions or at least there's more going on than the meets the eye. And I'm, you know, but I am wondering as well, whether that'll actually come to mean anything because yeah, I agree, you know, from playing the warrior, it was all pretty straightforward and, you know, I, so I played the demo of this and my experience was closer to Marsh's. Uh, and I think, so apparently the demo, even early on, um, the full game has some stuff the demo doesn't, but in the demo, I didn't feel like i had any decisions really like every decision was just like do, like where should i place this rock well it gets a bonus which is next to another rock and there's no other features so i place it next to the other rock and where should i place this meadow well a meadow gets a bonus if it's next to another meadow so okay i'll place it next to the meadow and then uh, you know like you say marsh like i I've gone for like a vampirism focus because that just seemed like sustainability like being able to top up your own health was um super uh important and so if I had that, basically I wouldn't need anything else. So I just stacked on vampirism uh, every chance I got. So again, all my loot decisions were pretty trivial. And yeah, that thing you were saying, Alex, about the the thing whose name cannot be remembered that goes next to a forest yeah. that <laughs> kills people when they are on 20% health. That sounds it's a really blood grove, isn't it? Blood, Ooh. Yeah, blood, blood grove. grove or blood, blood yeah. swamp, something or other. That sounds... Um, that kind of decision making sounds really cool and i want that but i never hit anything like that and even i did place a forest but nobody told me anything about why i would want to place a forest here rather than there like yeah. the decisions were, were divided into things where it's a no-brainer and you should always do x uh, versus things where maybe there is some reason i should place this in a specific spot but i'm not given any information about that and i'd only learn it through you know yeah. getting way further into the game and after about an hour with it, I was just had no reason to carry on. Yeah, I think it wants you to be wondering, you know, is there any reason why I'd put a cemetery here as opposed to there anywhere in the loop? And I think that it wants it wants you to discover that the answer to that as you yeah. play. And whether there is a satisfying answer to this, I don't know yet. Yeah. I, I mean, I would say that maybe not. I mean, I've, I've definitely found the boards I've rolled have been quite, fairly awkward in places where they weren't good places to put meadows or I was having to, I was saving up cards because I hadn't had a treasury yet. And when that meant that I wasn't getting health bonuses until late into the game or like a third to into the, into a run because I wanted to put all these rocks I was accruing around a, around a, a treasury for 
extra bits. The thing, actually, the thing that disquiets me most about it is um, so the end game thing, which is you know, do you do you run or do you continue? Um, because if you die, you lose seventy percent of all the stuff you accrued, um, which feels pretty bad. <laughs> like it definitely serves the idea of shall I run? Shall I, you know, cut my losses or shall I risk it? You know, that's what I guess they want. But it feels bad. It doesn't feel nice. It just, you know, you've invested. I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour into mm. a run and you kind of got a bag full of yeah, stuff and, and you, don't, you don't want to lose that shit. You don't really want to push the player to bet against themselves. Yeah. Like if you, players are already are going to want to be cautious. And when you say like, if you take any risk at all, there's a huge, there's a chance you'll lose a massive amount of, of stuff permanently. Yeah. Then you're just pushing the player to just be boring, just like okay, I'll stop at every. Which is what I did. Like I, I killed the boss, and I you you can continue. You continue after the boss. Like there's clearly it continues, but I I cut and lost, and I felt shit about that to be honest because mm. that wasn't that wasn't a nice feeling. There is an item. There is an item which grants you. You can spend to um to allow you to have all the loot i don't know how i got that item i didn't buy it <laughs> so i didn't really feel in any any sense of achievement from using it <laughs> i don't know whether i used it effectively i just saw the option and did it so again that was a bit odd yeah i, I died to the boss the first time i had the chance to fight him because you know uh i didn't expect the game to punish me for experimentation <laughs> But it does. It punishes punish me to the tune of seventy percent of all the loot that I accrued, <laughs> uh, and I'm just not going to do it again <laughs> until I'm absolutely certain I can I can tonk him, and that means I'm just going to have a lot of grinding to do, and that fucking sucks. I don't know why <laughs> why it would uh, why the game would sort of insist upon that. Really? Yeah, I um, I mean, I don't. I felt that I the. The, the one build you know the one time I did beat the boss it wasn't as a result particularly other than other than the blood grove thing um the name the, the thing that we can't remember I uh, other than that I didn't have any bonuses that I'd earned outside of the run it was all just because I had a good build from that run apparently hmm so that, I mean that, that's in its favor. Oh, so you mean it's 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 always possible? I think it's always possible. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's, you know, it's just how hard you can hit and how much you can avoid getting hit in return. I guess. Oh, just uh, I love the art, and I really don't like the words. <laughs> 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 so it's presented like a kind of a weird Commodore sixty four ish sort of game, pixel graphics. By default, it, it has this sort of CRT effect, sort of. So it's got these scan lines, and uh, but the yeah, I thought you'd like um, that. Oh, I, it's it's subtly done. I do like that enough to tempt you away from your Mister. <laughs> yeah, straight back to a Mister style thing. But the um the the cut the color palette is really muted and really controlled, so it feels really uh, true to its visual um, uh, kind of inspiration and that feels good i really like the character art and the art of the you know the board itself that's yeah that's good what do you think marty 
Yeah, it's gorgeous to look at, yeah. Yeah. But there's a lot of text and it's pretty badly written, I feel. It wants to tell you a story about good and evil and are are we the bad guy and stuff like that. And I'm just like, (laughs) no, 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 no. Yeah, I started skipping it fairly early on, and and once you start skipping text in a game, the text no longer has any opportunity to redeem itself, and so <laughs> that, that's it, really. If you, if you don't start strong, you're dead to me. To be fair, if you are actively creating vampires for you to fight, maybe you are the bad guy. I'm just giving <laughs> Yeah, I think that's fair. <laughs> Do, are the other developers native English speakers? I don't think so. I think they. It, I right. could be totally wrong here, but I think they're Russian. That would that would feel right because there are some. Uh, there's uh, one of, one of the problems I have with it is that the uh, descriptions of what Khans do sometimes don't differentiate between whether they're going to affect you or whether they're going to affect enemies. Yeah. For me, it was the beacons that says that um, it doubles the 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 attack the the, the attack speed. Oh yeah, of units of units yeah. like. Is that everyone or me? And if it's everybody, why the fuck mm. would would why? you might know, it makes no <laughs> <Yeah>. difference? <laughs> Who benefits? Nobody. We just do it faster. Game over faster. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it. <laughs> just get this over with. <laughs> and it but I think it does affect everybody, which is I don't know, I still don't understand that. But I don't know, I if or in all this mystery we figured them out and it leads to more decisions, I would say it's a really good game. If there, within all this mystery is nothing, then it is probably isn't that good a game. <laughs> <laughs> Jury's out, folks. <laughs> what you been playing, Tom? I have been playing Terraforming Mars, um, mm. which is a board game originally. And my friend Lulu got me into the board game um, uh, last weekend, and we played it. We played the physical version, and that takes like three plus hours because it's a it's a big fucking complex euro game with a lot of fucking tokens and it's it's just everything it's a like a maximalist game um i am really into race for the galaxy which i've talked about a little bit i think before on the podcast which is a a deck building card game where you sort of build a tableau and and you get your production online and all this stuff um this is all of that plus a hex based like a building game as well um and so the premise is that you're you're trying to make mars habitable and a key part of that is that there are three different axes on which you need to improve Mars. Mars is too cold, doesn't have enough oxygen, doesn't have enough water. So you are trying to increase the temperature, you're trying to increase the oxygen, you're trying to place water. Um, and water is the thing you're actually going to place on the map. The other two are things that you're just going to sort of raise a bar. And every time you do that, you go up the your terraforming rating improves, which is both uh, victory points at the end of the game and it's also your income every turn. So uh, you are racing to get the most credit for improving Mars, basically. Like, I want to uh, improve the temperature uh, before temperature is actually optimal, because after that point, you no longer get any points for it. And that's kind of the clever thing about it, especially compared to Race for the Galaxy, where Race for the Galaxy just has victory points, and if you can get victory points, you always want them, and they're always good, and so anything that's good is good forever. Um, in terraforming mars each different way of getting credit for improving mars is going to run out at some point during the game there's only three of them and once mars is at a good enough temperature i think it's eight degrees celsius that's hot enough you don't need to be hot on that <laughs> any hot if you need to be any hot than that you're just being fussy <laughs> so after that point there is no credit for improving the temperature of mars so all of your if you do like it's a game where you have uh you know 
all these different resources. And for every resource, you have both how much of it you have on hand and also how much you're producing each turn. So cards that improve your production are obviously great early on because every turn for the rest of the game, you're going to be getting more stuff. Um, but one of those is heat and improving your heat production great early on because there's loads of temperature increases that need to happen and you'll get credit for all of them the ones you do uh but there comes a time and it tends to be heat that maxes out first where we've we're at eight degrees celsius we don't need any more heat and so all of your heat production is now going to waste and there are, there aren't a lot of ways to convert heat into anything else good so every game basically you have to pivot and that's a really interesting thing about it from a game design point of view especially like deck builders and um i've played a lot of digital card games at this point um uh and a fair few board games that involve it too and this more than any other i can think of just demands that you are going to change your empire during the game you're going to have to uh, you don't have to specialize in one thing early on you could be do a sort of good all-rounder thing throughout but uh if you do specialize you're going to have to change your specialty because at some point you'll max out all the credit you can get from it so yeah, this is a board game originally. Uh, it's on Steam uh, as a digital version, and um, it's also on iPad. Um, so I bought it on Steam and then discovered it was on iPad and bought it on iPad immediately after, because <laughs> if I can get away from my computer to play something like this, then I will. But th those two versions are, are the same. Um, and the digital version has AI you can play against. And that's absolute catnip for me. That's because I love these games, but finding three hours with a friend to sit down and do it just doesn't happen very often. It's, it's, it's a rare thing. So I don't get to iterate. I don't get to try the possibilities and, and actually really meaningfully improve it at these games, unless there's a digital one where I can just be pitted against an AI. And just like Race of the Galaxy, the difference in the time it takes to play one game is extraordinary when it's digital. <laughs> because the, like I say, the real life game is like three plus hours, might have even been like four hours because uh, I was learning the game for the first time. Um, and then the digital version is like 40 minutes, <laughs> if that. Uh, and as you get better at it, it gets down to like half an hour. Um, and I love figuring out these systems. And uh, it's got all of the appeal of something like Slayer Spire, where you know, the, the cards you're being dealt are pushing you to figure out a way to select them intelligently so that they synergize with each other and you get a build that really works. But then it has this extra aspect of whatever you specialize in, you're probably going to have to change into specialize in something else later. And there are cards set up to do that. Like there's one card that will take all of your heat production and, oh, sorry, as much of your heat production as you like and turn it into money production instead, which is fantastic if you specialize in heat production and then you want to pivot your whole empire into something else because money's good for everything. Um, and playing against the AI, the AI seems pretty good so far. I lost my first game to an easy AI, so that's a good sign. Um, and there, it goes up to hard. And I'm currently struggling with medium. I've sometimes beat a medium, not always. They're a little bit similar in how they play. Like there is one move the AI loves to do and they'll always do it first, which is to place an ocean in a certain spot where if you place an ocean in this spot, you get two cards back. And I guess that seems like a good trade-off. I never really, did, I didn't go for it in the real life game. Um, and the AI will always do that if it can. But one thing I love about playing against AI is I can really enjoy beating them <laughs> that's the thing i don't get with human opponents like human opponents i don't like to lose but i also don't love to win like i don't really like beating somebody um uh unless it's been unless unless it's looked like i'm going to lose for the whole game like the only the only really satisfying outcome for a game is for me to think i'm going to lose the whole game then right at the last minute pull it out um 
Whereas versus AI, I just want to crush them over and over again. I want them to lose every single time. <laughs> if they lose by a humiliating margin, that's fantastic because they're not people. I don't have to feel bad about it. <laughs> and I can just engage all of my mechanic's brain and, <laughs> and uh, be totally merciless. And so there's a really nice mechanic in this game called um, awards. And at any time, anybody can sponsor an award. And that means you pay some money right now. And at the end of the game, whoever you choose a category for the award like is it the most uh the most heat produced or is it the most steel and iron or is it um how much land you own or is it how much your money production is whatever category you pick at the end of the game whoever is best at that then will get five victory points and five victory points is a lot I, it's the i think it's the biggest single victory point gain you can have um from a single action uh, is to sponsor an award and then at the end of the game win it and there's a really nice risk reward thing with this because that you can only only three awards can be funded in the whole game, and the first one is really cheap. It's only eight money. The next one to to be funded is going to cost fourteen money, and the next one is going to be I think twenty. And so these get more expensive as the, the more of them have been backed. So you're pushed to do it early because if your enemy starts to back an award, then your whatever category you were hoping to win, you've got to now pay more to to fund that award. But of course, the earlier you back it, the less certainty there is that you'll win. Like, okay, you're in the lead now, but will you always be in the lead for this? And it turns out the easy AI, at least, is is loves these awards. It's also really fucking good. At, there's another category called milestones where you just get it right now. Like if you have three cities, you get the milestone, you get five victory points, and it's, it's a huge advantage. And the AI is really good at remembering to do that as soon as it possibly can. And me, a human, is really bad at remembering to do that. <laughs> and so it always wins that category. Um, but awards, it will remember sooner than I do to go for them. Like, oh shit, uh, they're in the lead for this this category. So they're going to get an award and they get it before I do. So that I'm like, shit, now if I want to fund an award, it's going to cost me more money. I don't know if it's really worth it. Um, and so the AI did this. He, he got like two of the three milestones and then he backed two awards. And that means there's only one award that I could possibly fund at this point. And uh, he is, he's gone for the awards for like most steel produced and most heat produced. And uh, that is, that's your final balance of those resources. So it's not just how much you produced over the course of the game, but it's how much do you have left over? Like, did you spend any of it? Um, and sure enough, he's beaten me in both those categories. They, he's definitely doing better uh, at both those things by a lot, like more than 50% of, of, of mine. But it's like halfway through the game, He's done it pretty early. And I look at these things and I think, like, that is not what I'm specializing in. He's specializing that I'm not. But I could. <laughs> like, I could just change my whole empire to just, like, mine steel and produce heat. Even though I don't even need heat to improve Mars at this point. Like, that is over. The temperature bar is pretty much filled. There's no more actual virtuous reason to produce heat. Except that I beat this motherfucker. <laughs> and he has bet some money that he's going to be best at heat. And I think I can just devote my whole game to beating him on the two things he thinks he's best at, because that's not his whole empire. He's got other things going on, and he's also trying to like build cities and build greeneries and stuff. Um, and if I just decide to change my entire focus to what he thinks he's good at, then I not only do I get five points for winning the award, but he doesn't get five points, which is effectively me getting ten points in a two-player game. That's that's 
twice mm-hmm. as good as, as something that just gets you five points. So that's an insane win. Like gaining 10 points over your enemy is, like I say, that's twice the biggest single move you can do in the game. And if I can do it for both awards simultaneously, that's just an astronomical advantage. And so I just devoted everything into like, I'm oh, I'm going to actually create a mine right now. I'm going to... Uh, sell a couple of cards so that I can afford this thing that gains me a bunch of titanium. I'm going to... My heat production that I didn't really care about, I've actually had a card on the back burner. I was probably going to get rid of it at some point that just gives me seven heat production. I'm going to get that, even though we don't need any more temperature. Even though Mars is hot enough, <laughs> I'm just going to focus my whole empire on this just to beat this guy at the thing he's good at. Um, and it worked. By the end of the game, I actually beat him on heat production and steel production. And uh, that just means not only did I get the like 20 points over him that um, I otherwise wouldn't have. But also he paid for those. Like he put money down for those awards. <laughs> and there's like a, such a like uh, a schadenfreude thrill. To, like you paid for me to just beat you by 20. <laughs> Do you think in real life, like if that scenario had played out in a tabletop game, I appreciate you gestured at this. Do you think you would be capable of that play? Capable is, a, is an interesting word. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't enjoy it. Chosen. Yeah. I, I wouldn't feel good about it. Like, but you would like, do yeah. Well, I mm, no, I probably no. I wouldn't. I wouldn't pivot my whole empire to do it because it's a real spiteful thing to do. It's a gamble as well. I might fail to do it, and that's mm. against a real person in a social situation. <laughs> you you bet the whole game on a spiteful move to try and like destroy somebody <laughs> for your own benefit, and then you also fail at it. Like <laughs> that's a pretty bad day. Good day for them, though, you know. Yes, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm. I'm definitely like. I hate. I don't know when, especially when I'm win- already winning in a game. I hate sort of having to tell somebody that something has worked out to my advantage. Like, I'm afraid mm. by doing this, I actually get to steal all of your money production. And <laughs> I'm glad you reserve this for the AIs. <laughs> had you not handle that compunction, you would be a monster, Tom. <laughs> I know. Good you see, know. I think I think when you know, if you if you're with people that you're very comfortable with and you all agree, then you can play tabletop games or board games in, you know ruthless mode and that could be fun this is why we don't play board games together (laughs) well except hundreds of horses obviously the the best board game yeah exactly but like the you know because that moment where if you'd made that bet and it had gone wrong everyone enjoys that that's a good memory you know (laughs) i don't enjoy it (laughs) right well you know but like sometimes you need a heal is what i'm saying and I'm glad that, but I'm glad that this digital version of the game is allowing you to be a heel in a safe environment. Yeah, you know? that's that's where I like to be. Yeah, exactly. I think so. That there are definitely board games, especially that are like designed around this. Like the whole point of the board game is to be an absolute bastard to your friends, and mm. that is how you play it. And in those, I'm fine with it. It's like, all right, you know, I'm doing this. I might I might be apologetic as I'm doing it, but I'm going to do it because it's the whole game. Whereas this one, like, you can just you can win by being by making a really nice empire that works really well and your production will make sense and you play the right cards at smart times and you just do well and they don't do as well and so you win and it's a real fucking choice to say <laughs> the thing you're most proud of about your empire the thing you think is best i can do that better now even though you know i'm trying to do that <laughs> <laughs> all i'm saying all i'm saying is you still have the compulsion <laughs> <laughs> it's in there um I also played Airborne Kingdoms. Anyone played that? No. No. It's a city builder where your city is uh, 
big flying thing. <laughs> it's got ah. it's got some balloons on it. It's got some fans on it. And it's wafting around. Um, uh, a classic Bioshock scenario. Yeah, it is a bit. Um, visually, though, it looks like the Game of Thrones opening credits. You know, they're sort of like hmm. uh, very like sharp edged layers, sort of contours, um, model city kind of thing. Like a paper craft um, kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, and this is it's a city builder that doesn't have a lot in the way of pressure. So uh in theory, like the only pressure is that you need coal to stay afloat, and if you run out of coal, I assume that's just game over. It's never happened. That's quite a lot of pressure for a city. To it does, have. yeah, yeah. Like... It does. <laughs> it does. It it sounds bad, but actually in play, it's just so far from ever happening. Like it's never even come close. I never even had to think about it really. It's just like my the only thing I think about is like um, oh, I'm not currently completely maxed out on coal. I guess I'll go get that coal because I'm at 39 out of 40 <laughs> and I've never been below 20. Um, it's really easy to stay afloat. It's And that's the design philosophy of the game, I think, is, has been to like never really uh, put your feet to the fire. You're always just being asked, like, how do you want the city to be built and what do you want to specialize in? And it's... You're you're building like paths out from your your main you know engine, and then adding on things like hangars. And hangars have planes in them that your citizens can then fly out and gather resources from the ground because all the resources are on the ground. Um, so they're just your workers going out and fetching resources. Um, then you can build stuff like um, housing for your people. You kind of need one house per person, and how you stack that and how you arrange that to be sort of optimal um, is a thing. And then as you're building this empire, tilt becomes a factor. Because if you build too much on one side of it, your whole thing starts to tilt in the air. <laughs> and that makes you, I think it makes you move slower. Um, I think it might even make your citizens less happy <laughs> because they're on a fucking uh -huh. slope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, I uh, used to live up a hill, but now I do. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, it doesn't. I don't think it does affect things on this level, but I would love it if it just took citizens longer to get from the left edge to the right edge. <laughs> mm. um, but yeah, that's the thing. Like every time you play something, you're told what the tilt implications of this will be, and you can you can you want to build out evenly on both sides, and then front and back tilt is also a thing, and then lift becomes a thing. Like now you just got too much weight, and you need to build more like upward fans to to keep you afloat. Um, but really, the, the cool thing about it is just that this is a city builder where you can move. And the whole uh, terrain is a bunch of little patches of resources that run dry when you harvest them after a while. And so then you just sort of waft out into the unknown and go look for new patches of resources. And as you go, you find little like, um, settlements and temples and stuff that all have... Um, followers that can join you and ancient artifacts that have some benefit to you. Uh, you find big ground-based civilizations who you are trying to ally with and they will have quests for you like, oh, we've got this wind farm out here that, that broke down. Can you go and fix it for us? Uh, and because you're a flying city, the answer is, yeah, sure. <laughs> More than any other city, I can do this. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's just a really nice, it's a very relaxing game, very... Um, chill pace you everything is always just getting better basically you never really suffer any uh, adversity you're just making your empire better and better and uh it's really cool to be able to like play a city builder where you're also exploring and not exploring by sending out a guy and then having to send him back but you just send your whole city into a new unknown place and i just got to a, a point where 
I've I've allied with the three civilizations in in the starting area who are all it's all pretty easy to to float between them and the next area is the shallows which is uh there's water everywhere um and there's still resources there but coal is less common and coal like i say is the one that keeps you afloat it's the one that you really need um and so you're basically advised to kind of spend a while in the opening area upgrading not just not just gathering coal but also upgrading your capacity to store coal because you can also upgrade your storage uh for each of these things and that's true for like your wood resources that you're gathering your food your water all these different things um so it has this nice feeling of like preparing for a big journey i haven't done it yet but i'm that's the next thing for me to do is to like really upgrade my coal capacity and make sure my ship can or my city can fly for a really long time without having to resupply um and i almost wanted to go further in that direction because that feels really nice like i really like thinking of this more as a ship than a city um and specializing that ship to do something in particular you can you can kind of do that like one of the things you can upgrade is propulsion so if you want to move faster um that's the thing you can specialize in and it's never essential to do that but it's kind of fun to just to just to have the idea of like i want to make a really sleek city like if you uh also the smaller you make it the faster you'll go um i think a tilt is a factor in that i'm not sure whether whether it counts like width against you, whether like having a narrow, long city would be faster than a wide, flat city, it it might well do because they do measure stuff like that. And yeah, just that's a really fun thing to play around with. It's really relaxing. It's really beautiful to look at, um, and it actually feels like meaningfully better than a regular city builder to me. Like I've played a lot of chill city builders, and they're fun, but having this extra dimension of I'm actually traveling as I'm doing it is really nice. Have you played um before we leave, Tom? No, I haven't actually. That's that's next on my list. Yeah, I I played that a little bit. I'm sort of not really ready to talk about it because um, um, but it's another cute uh pressure, low pressure uh city builder, um, about coming out of in this case you're coming out of a vault like it's the end of the apocalypse and you're coming out again to repopulate. Uh, and this is like much more about very constrained space. So you're on a hex grid. And you, you're going to need to use your space very wisely because certain things need to be built in very specific places, you know, and you're kind of competing for space mm. against the, the resources you need as well. But it's it's it very beautiful as well, kind of a sort of tilt shift uh, effect on the images, you know. Yeah, that one's like it's on a spherical planet, right? You can sort of yeah, that's right. You yeah, you zoom the, out and you kind of the see curve. this thing. Yeah, the curve. I find it a little bit distracting. I must admit, in the little <laughs> go like, because you just constantly feel you can't quite see enough because it's blurring yeah. out the foreground and the background, and it's curvature means you don't have a clear view of the things that are on the edge of the view. Yeah, it's um, yeah. Sadly, that is my feeling. That that was my feeling about uh, Planetary Annihilation, which is the Total Annihilation successor um, that was kickstarted. And it it looks super cool in screenshots and stuff. But then you play it, and you're like, I just really want an overview. I just really want to see an actual fucking map because with a sphere, you can never see all of it, and it's just annoying to not be able to see all of what's going on. Yeah, well, you zoom right in on this one, but yeah, you there's just constant niggling feeling that you're not quite seeing as much as you feel you ought to. But it's quite a busy 
visually busy image for you know it's very beautiful but there's you know the distinction between buildings is not that easy to discern especially at a distance but anyway i'm not i haven't really played that much yet so i can't really speak much further about it yeah i'm definitely planning to play that have you played anything else marty i have you know i've been playing rot <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> how dare you <laughs> i just realized that i have as uh, well yes <laughs> it, it means a, a nail i think or a point in in czech um but h-r-o-t yeah it's a it's a first person shooter sort of th- throwback to uh sort of quake one era of polygonal density um although it's not actually on a uh, on a retro engine it's on a custom uh engine that's been built in pascal uh, by a single developer from in fact the czech republic um and it's about the czech republic sort of these coincidences keep piling up (laughs) (laughs) or rather it's it's actually about czechoslovakia as it was known Mm. in 1986 which is when it's supposedly set although it's not really set in czechoslovakia from 1986 because it's actually set in a very heightened uh exaggeratedly horrible soviet horror version of czechoslovakia where everything is this uniform quake brown and the only food you can eat are tins of blood and fat i don't know what the problem is um (laughs) and and everyone uh even horses are forced to wear gas masks um but like uh i feel like this is like this is like a particular aesthetic in the horror that comes out of post-communist states but i don't know if it has like a, a proper genre name it's some sort of like histrionic but slightly self-aware soviet miserabilism um which is not to say that the the soviet rule in those countries wasn't like a bad time but like the grim aesthetic here is mutated and uh metastasized into something you know more appreciably horror it's like otherworldly and feverish and mm. and sort of but at the same time knowingly absurd um i mean the enemies you fight aren't just communists in in gas masks they uh they sort of inhuman and they they sort of snuffle and grunt and groan and wheeze like monsters uh from a creature feature but um you're also as likely to be attacked by a a suddenly animated soviet sculpture of a gorilla for example or uh, or horses wearing gas masks um and at one point um a gymnasium pommel horse comes alive and kicks the shit out of you (laughs) um so it's like it's clearly a horror game but it's also uh, very, very uh, weird and quite funny. Um, one of the interactions you have as an option is to kiss portraits of the politician Gustav Husak, yeah. for example. Um, <laughs> I don't know why. Uh, and it's uh, got they, were, some... they were just trying to head off the inevitable criticism it would receive in its Edge review. <laughs> <laughs> why couldn't you? <laughs> if only we could. <laughs> kiss Can't you simply kiss the portraits? <laughs> Uh, it's got it has some great sound effects as well and there's this one uh, enemy who charges at you holding this explosive barrel and he announces himself with probably my favorite comedy scream in a game it's just like this is like, <laughs> 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 um but the other thing about about it that i really like is how good like the low poly the sort of quake equivalent engine with its quake equivalent palette of colors how good that is at rendering graceless fucking communist slabs. <laughs> like, I mean, it's arguably a lot better than Quake itself was at rendering medieval or fu- futuristic architecture. Mm. And it's like, it's almost weird that no one has hit 
on on using that those engines to create you know grievously utile communist carbuncles uh, at the previous <laughs> time. You know the kind of buildings that Alex wishes everybody lived in, just grim, <laughs> grimy slabs devoid of any human warmth whatsoever. Um, but yeah, there's something there's something really funny about. You know, the game announcing that the next level is the Ministry of Culture, only for it to reveal <laughs> itself as this just the bleakest concrete cuboid with iron <laughs> doors and grilled windows. And it's, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I find it very funny. I don't entirely, I think it's meant to be funny, but I mean, yeah. Yeah. But outside of all that, it's also just a, a, a fun, briskly paced, well-balanced retro shooter of a f- fairly mindless kind, I suppose, but... Um, it's not just retro in the way it looks either. It's it's mining a lot of the cliches of that that era, sort of monster closets and all, which isn't necessarily something I'd normally go for. But I think it, I don't know. I think it uses those tropes in a fairly, relatively sort of refined way with the many years of hindsight that we now have. And it, the, but it's the setting that really mm. makes it feel fun and different. We're about to rethink the check builder genre. <laughs> 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 Got an interesting variety of laughs for that one. <laughs> I see it's it's overwhelmingly positive on Steam, which speaks well of it. Mm. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, it is in early access, but I don't know why you wouldn't buy it now. It feels quite complete and polished. There are a few things where I think it doesn't signpost some stuff as well as it could, but it is sort of one of it's almost. I mean, you remember back in the Doom days, and you didn't know necessarily know where to go next, and you had to sort of bring up your map and then pour over it for the areas that you hadn't quite been to yet. I mean, it's 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 hard to know whether that's a you know a, a failure or a feature, but it's 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 definitely in there. That kind of befuddlement, but yeah, liked it. Sounds like it gets a little kiss from you. It does. <laughs> 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 just noise based reviews for games from now on I mean, we've been there for a while now we've been there 360 yeah. episodes of that I guess um, I've got to have a noise for my Mars a terraforming Mars oh, cool. uh, award sniping behaviour <laughs> 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 I regret that immediately. <laughs> that had, yeah, that had like uh, how the rat in Ratatouille hears humans initially. <laughs> Energy. Uh, yeah, I would need a noise for what it's like when you lose in in um, Hellish Court, but you impale the other person as well, and therefore it is a draw, and you'll get to have another go. Which would be like, <laughs> I regret that as well. I don't know why I decided to follow you in this hole. Shall we do some questions from questions? I think we will. Shall Good. I begin? Yes. All right. Tell us the questions. Mm. Uh, Toivo writes, Dear Crate and Crobe R... What is the most captivating game with the least amount of player input that you can recommend? Thanks. Uh, Loop Hero <laughs> would be a new contender. There is, there's a game that Loop Hero has been compared to already uh, called Progress Quest, which was a mm. entirely mm. non-interactive RPG, which I actually really liked. I was surprised that robbing me of all interactivity 
did not rob me of all fun. <laughs> like I was actually quite content to watch these bars go up and stuff. And I almost, I think Luke Pierre almost <laughs> suffers by comparison for me. <laughs> like it, it wants me to do stuff, but like I say, in the hour I played, I, I wasn't aware of any interesting decisions I could be making. And so part of me was like, well, can you just play it for me then? Like if I, mm. if I don't have any difficult dilemmas to solve, then uh, I would rather you just streamlined all of this away and let me just watch numbers go up. Uh, I would I would put um, Defcon in its real time mode mm. in this in this bracket. Yeah, were you in the on the PC Gamer real time day of that? I was, and I think that was just before my time actually. Um, but that, that is was, the we kind had of experience the, I'm thinking about. The absolute folly to think that uh, oh, oh let's let's start let's try this real time mode for Defcon and we'll just have it running in the background while we get on with our work days. And then we'll just check in on it, you know, every like hour, half hour, whatever. And of course, like all of us just spent 100% of our time obsessing over it because it turns out it will expand to fill, you know, whatever time you, uh, it takes. Like no matter how slow it is, you still need you still need to know the second someone launches a nuke. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's low input, but not low involvement. Yeah. I also, um, I really like Universal Paperclips which is uh, Frank mm. Lance's. Um, it's the closest to an idle slash clicker game that I've really like got into and and seen all the way through. Um, and yeah, the input is, it's not uh, close to zero. It's definitely you're, you're managing a, a thing and, and deciding what upgrades you want to get. But a lot of it is just, you know, ticking away and um, numbers going up and it's all about exponential increases. And it's based, for anyone who doesn't know, it's um, uh, based on a sort of classic AI thought experiment that that says you know one of the reasons you should be careful of ai is if you make an ai that that is tasked with producing as many paperclips as possible one of the first things it might do is destroy the human race so that no one can stop it from producing paperclips ever <laughs> there's quite the a lot of, you do that there's quite a lot of stuff that you have to do in that one actually if there's any criticism i have of it is that um within this format of you know an idle game you do have to do quite a lot of quite involved interaction to progress yeah. things. Yeah, definitely compared to other idle games, it's not low input. But yeah, compared it'd to... be super clever though. It's really fun and surprising and goes places. Mm. Our next question comes from Ben, who writes, "Dear people who are wrong," which is a just a <laughs> sunny greeting. Uh, you're all wrong. About the best item in a game, it is in fact the folding scythe from Grim Fandango. The clickety clack that unfolds, the little tap on the floor, and the sound I can only refer to as a doom schwang. All that, plus the fact that it fits into a leather jacket, perfection, or a jacket pocket. What the fuck am I talking about? A question? All right then. What's your favourite word that only gets used in games to make them sound clever? Mine's probably chitin, or maybe viscera. Love from Ben. Kitin. So mm. I don't know uh, if this qualifies, but definitely because those two are games, uh, sorry, those two are words that you uh, commonly see in video games and less so elsewhere. Uh, you see them a lot in fantasy novels, actually. Uh, but yeah, game specific words, the words that like most uniquely gamey uh, for me are uh, pauldron and curus. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard those outside of video games. And I was like but, super into medieval arms and armor when I was a kid. Like I read up on all this stuff. And how about hobuck? How are you with the hobuck? <laughs> Love a good hobuck, me. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I think games. I think um, I would put Sundered in this category. <laughs> I think people yeah, rarely true. describe broken things in real life as like, ah, oh, my car has been Sundered. <laughs> like, <laughs> but they should. They should, yeah. <laughs> and actually, like, Cleave is in almost mm. every fantasy game I've yeah. ever made. <laughs> lots, means lots of different things as well. Oh man, that, that fucking asshole on the A20 cleaved my car in twain. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think maybe depths as a word to describe um, like a, a lower level of a place. Yeah. Um, I'm going to, to the depths of the house to access the Go to the door. depths of Staples. <laughs> <laughs> maybe people do say that actually. Maybe I'm wrong about that. Like, I feel like that was a sentence I would say. Um, a lot of this is located in that kind of medieval fantasy world, I guess. Yeah, yeah. There are. I mean, there's got to be quite a lot of military uh, oh, jargon. Yes. That uh, Clancyisms of some sorts, right? In fact, I tell you what, the um, uh, there was a, a kind of entertainingly uh, stiff playthrough of the first-person uh, addition to the Elite that's forthcoming, mm. um, and it involved... Three men, very gamely, trying to make it sound more exciting than it was, um, using lots of sort of almost like pseudo kind of military jargon, but just casual, like military cash. Yeah, it was um, really very, very just over, just over the line in kind of day to day, but it was so close, wasn't it? So just so just over the line into like TA. Yeah, 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 yeah. it's TA. Yeah, right. They're like, oh. We've- We've got to get that extract soon. They're really stacking up on the door, and the enemy AI just kind of wanders into the opening and stands still, shooting and missing for like three seconds. Yeah, we're in mortal peril here. Guys, I'll I'll go to the extraction point. Yeah, that kind of thing. By which I mean my Uber's here. Yeah, (laughs) that's the LZ. (laughs) That I was. uh, I've I've been playing. Elite uh, Dangerous with uh, with uh, with friend of the show um, Owen Jones and um, and I am I'm excited by getting to run around on planets, but I yeah I, I never saw I never wanted this to be a first person shooter, so yeah I hope not too many resources being put into that stuff. <laughs> I think maybe um, I engage with the word farming in the games context far more than I would ever even consider. Like I don't consider myself to farm anything in real life, <laughs> but I definitely perform repetitive tasks in return for small resource gains. Right. <laughs> Maybe it's that gonna, is a usage that I'd like to see crossover. It's going to farm some salary. Yeah. I just need to, yeah, I just need to farm some money for eight hours and then I'll be free. Just grinding out an illustration. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> What was that film with uh, Gerard Butler that you watched the other day, Chris? Oh, um, Greenland. Because that has, in the trailer, there's just, I don't know why this tickled me so much, but it cuts to a newsreel, uh, and obviously a meteorite's about to hit the earth. And the, the newscaster is saying, this is an extinction level event. And I just thought, why would you, why yeah. would you use such a weird science bit- term for it? Rather there's, than we're all gonna fucking die, right? There's um, there's a the the, the other way that expresses itself. That's a weird film. I don't want to go off and want to see much about it, but like, I quite enjoyed it as a quite a detailed um and very kind of ground level um, exp- I don't think it's, there are definitely dramatic character moments in it, but I think it's the the the, the roller coaster that the characters go on is maybe slightly too unrealistic to for it to be as like a realistic depiction of one person's experience at the end of the world, but 
um, it's very like ground level and almost like simulationist in its approach in a way that I quite like for some reason. I, I find it entertaining to watch people be really stressed about the world ending. Um, but a, a phrase the writer clearly loves is planet killer. And like an early, like the early part of the film hinges on the notion that this is a minor spoiler for the beginning of the movie, but it's an asteroid disaster movie. So you kind of get what's going to happen. Um, that uh, everyone everyone knows there's like a comet passing by the earth but everyone's expecting it's like a school project it's it's going to be the closest flyby ever and um it's sort of left relatively ambiguous about whether this is deliberate misinformation to keep people calm or whether people they people didn't really didn't know it was going to be a disaster and there's a moment and the moment where it dawns on people that know this is you know a serious threat is actually quite chilling in some ways until gerard butler's neighbor runs out into the driveway holding his phone and yelling in through Jared Butler's car window. They've changed the classification. They say it's a planet killer. And it's like, is that one of, is that what you would say? Because it's a very abstract way of looking at the planet where you live. Like, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> exactly. Like, let's specify which planet. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, um, like a better, we, we're going to need to go to a different planet, but unfortunately we live in suburban Atlanta in 2020. So <laughs> it's a planet killer. And they mean this planet, not just any planet, this one. Um, it did expose like, a, 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 like just, it has that, that film has a like chef's kiss line in uh, news readers voices quavering as they realize that they too are a human from earth and will be affected <laughs> by the events being described on the teleprompter. <laughs> like that was my favorite line in Tenet, um, where someone is explaining the stakes of the movie and if X happens, everything and everyone who's ever existed or ever will exist will be completely annihilated. And the woman says, including my son. <laughs> 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 that, yeah, that, the, way to, yeah. the way to redeem that line if 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 you weren't a coward is to go not mine mine's imaginary like some kind of christopher nolan trying to imagine how women think yeah exactly oh. it's like how would i filter this through woman brain <laughs> yeah, emotional <laughs> uh i when I, I that's the last film i saw in the cinema and the entire audience laughed aloud the moment kenneth branner was revealed and i don't know why <laughs> i don't know if it was some sort of like brief summer reprieve from lockdown mania like we're all just excited to see kenneth branner like what's he gotten up to this time um as a russian arms dealer but yeah it was it was it was yeah i don't know why there was just some sort of shared understanding that this was funny that we're all we're all supposed to be afraid of kenneth branner for the rest of this film and it's quite you know he's he can be scary but he can also be Kenneth Branagh. His two roles. Mm. And Poirot. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. He's a very versatile actor. I don't know why we're dragging him. No, I don't know. He's an incredible actor. But it, I don't know why. It was almost like a relief to see him. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's see. What's the next one? Colin writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, is Outer Wilds an example of a good Doom Clock game? If so, give us your thoughts on how it succeeds. Cheers, Colin. You weren't here for this yes. chat last week. <laughs> I wasn't. I'm yeah, passing this one to Tom. Yeah, I was. I was listening to the episode where this question was asked, and I was like, um, uh, yeah, champing at the bit to <laughs> to chime in on this discussion because um, it's a really interesting topic. I think. Um, I think. Yeah, I think Outer Worlds 
is a death clock, but Alex, you were you were saying you didn't feel it was only because uh, it, death clocks. I would tend to find mean make you make decisions on in the long term, long term decisions. Mm. I suppose it puts pressure on those as opposed to sort of short term. I don't, I don't know. I'm not really. I'm yeah. thought it through, but I. It feels to me like there's a long term thing. Yeah, you're right. You never lose anything permanent from the Outer Worlds death right. clock. Whatever you lose yeah. is something you could get back next time, um, and that is different to stuff like XCOM objectives that expire because if you don't get them, you can never get them. Um, but yeah, Invisible Ink is an interesting one where like every mission has a death clock that's ticking right from the off, and it was interesting because. Like like some of the XCOM 2 stuff, there's a lot in XCOM 2 that, that makes design sense on paper. You can sort of make a good argument for why it's in there and how it how it you know uh, changes player behavior in a way that pushes them towards experiences you want them to have. But there is a large contingent of players who have a really bad reaction to it. And um, Invisible Ink, it's very controversial that, that, that there's a death clock right from the start, basically. Um, especially because it's phrased as an alarm. So, you know, in a stealth game, stealth games are usually about avoiding tricking the alarm. And in Invisible Ink, they just tell you the alarm has gone off now. Like it's it's already, they already know you're here and they're just gearing up their response to you being here. And that sort of takes something away from the stealth aspect, I guess. And also the time pressure is um, something everyone's extremely sensitive, extremely sensitive yeah. to. It's... I found it interesting because, I mean, it, it didn't bother me in Invisible Ink. I actually, I whatever they did to make me accept it worked. I did accept it. It was just like, okay, sure. They're, they're just like, I, I sort of saw it in my head. My head cannon for it was like, it's not that they know we're here. It's just that the longer we go beating people up <laughs> and stealing shit, uh, the, the more they're going to send people to investigate what is going on floor 34. It's not like, oh, we know the Invisible Ink guys are here and we know it's these four people. Like we're not blown. It's just that what we are doing is inherently suspicious, and it makes sense that more and more guards would teleport into this floor to to try and figure out what is happening here exactly. <laughs> like mm. something's happening here. Um, and it like okay, it's a it's not that isn't quite how the mechanic works because it's not triggered <laughs> by you stealing stuff and it's not triggered by you attacking people. It's um, there are certain events that do, that do up the alarm rating, um, but it's going to keep going up no matter what but it was still possible for me to like headcanon my way around that. And I'm also much more tolerant of it in turn-based games than real-time games. When it's a real-time game, there's a real time limit. Um, that is incredibly stressful. And uh, in a turn-based game, I mind it a lot less because I have, you know, each turn I could spend as long as I like thinking about how to optimize it. And I sort of agree with the broad principle that that pushing people to optimize for turns is is interesting it usually makes them engage in the mechanics more and there's there's you can get more out of a turn-based game that way but i also think there's there's another game design lesson to apply here which is that it's if possible it's all it's almost always better to use carrot rather than stick like you almost always want to reward people for doing what you want them to do rather than punish them for not doing what you want them to do um and i think time is definitely one like that like um we ended up doing that. Like heat signature has has time pressure um, when you set off an alarm. So we did it kind of, you know, if you set off the alarm, then time pressure happens. Um, and it's a pause and play game. So you, you again, it's no real time pressure. But then when it came to like rethink that for the daily challenge stuff, we went for something where uh, you are rewarded 
the faster you do it. So it's um, it's more in, in terms of getting a bonus score for doing it quickly than it is for being punished for doing it slowly. Hmm. Tom writes, Hello, great crates of the bar. Theory. Valheim's viral success could be in some part attributed to its download size. Only one gigabyte. A friend can go from that sounds cool to buying and playing with said friend in minutes. Discuss! He demands. Uh, but there's a question as well, uh, but we can obviously talk about install size. Uh, what is your most uninstalled game? The game you keep installing thinking you'll definitely get the most out of it this time, but then always uninstall because something new and shiny needs, needs the space, and well, I'm not playing that really, am I? Mine is probably Dishonored 2. I don't think there's a Steam stat to confirm this. Loved the first one, but was at university at the time, and since then, Immersive Sims 2 seemed too hard to commit to in real post-uni life. Thanks for reading, Tom. Um, this is probably going to be an obvious answer from me, given the saga of me not playing this game, but it's probably the Witcher series. I've installed okay. the entire series and it uninstalled it like every year, I suspect. I, I, I think I need to learn that having a thing available isn't going to make me engage with it, right? It's like <laughs> placing a heavy book in front of my computer and I will <laughs> like, I, I, I will simply just like work around it. Like I'll just sort of like, it'll get, cups of coffee put on it it will be kind of navigated around until i decide to tidy up when it goes back on a shelf um <laughs> yeah how is, you uh sherlock holmes crimes and punishments which <laughs> i <laughs> wow. i'm i want to play because it's uh i'm told that it's a game where like you investigate the crime and then you just sort of like make a call on who you think did it and you're allowed to just go ahead with that even if it's not right and then you find out later whether your your accusation was correct and there's kind of consequences for that uh, one way or the other, which sounds great. But for some reason, it never quite, es it always escalates to the point of me installing it, but never escalates to the point of me playing it. <laughs> I think for me, it's XCOM 2, which I've just stubbornly just not been able to get into over and just, I don't know, probably about five or six attempts now and uh, different things so have like, gone in my way. Say again. You started to play it. You started Side to play, to play. yeah. So installed. This is the time. So I've probably either listened to you talk about it, Tom, or read something. You know, because clearly it's a good game, and clearly you know it's exciting and inspires good stories, and that makes me install it. This is going to be the time, I think. And uh, and then I just cannot get into it. It's the doom. Actually, there's a doom clock aspect to it, which I. Yeah. I know why it's there, and I don't enjoy it, and and then I give up. It's, yeah, that game is, that's definitely the classic example of like a bunch of mechanics that all sort of make sense on paper, but contribute to a bad feeling for a lot of players in practice. Because Graham was saying he also um, just loved XCOM 1 and, and couldn't get into XCOM 2. It's very pressuring. And also, I, the Doom Clock thing, the thing I don't like about it is is I can't make judgment calls about how... Uh, how much I can afford to let that tick up. You know, I, I take an action. It's like, oh, this took up the doom clock by two. And it's like, well, is that okay or not? <laughs> like, I don't yeah. know what, I don't know what happens when it fills. I also don't know how many events I'm going to get that reduce it. I don't know how many events I'm going to get that increase it. I don't know how much control I'm going to have over it. 
And so it's always yeah. this unknowable thing of like, you know, is there just this balance to kind of this, feel bad? Yeah, is, this, is there this elastic band which is always going to apply a certain amount of pressure and, you know, it will slacken a bit if things are getting a bit fruity and a little tight knit yeah. if I do too well? And I think if I have to drill down into like, why did I, I did click with XCOM 2 and I did get into it in a big way. Um, although with the caveat that I was all the while creating a, probably the biggest list of complaints I've ever had against a single game. <laughs> like, there was so many problems with the game. Even though I fucking love it. I played it for hundreds of hours and I played it multiple campaigns and, and the expansion and everything. Um, gone hard on it. But all the time I'm always like, oh, why is it like this? Oh, why does it do this? Oh, I wish it didn't do that. <laughs> um, and I think the reason is is that Doom Clock, I just, I just looked at it and thought, well, I, you know, I don't like that I can't make good decisions about this. I don't have enough information to, to make decisions on it. So I think I'm just going to not worry about it. I think I'll just let it, you know, I'll ignore it. And if it if it really gets terrible, if it actually ends my campaign, then I'll hate the game for it. But until that point, I'll let it just ride. And that kind of works. <laughs> like it, it, it's, it's much more generous than it looks like it is. It makes you feel bad way before it's, you're encountering any actual problems. Um, so it's mostly kind of an illusion. It's, it's to give you the feeling of pressure, but it doesn't really, you're not, it's very hard to actually fall foul of it. Well, that just makes me more angry. <laughs> <laughs> Glad I can help. <laughs> How about you, Matu? No. Okay. <laughs> Anyone got any supplemental thoughts about the size of game and as qualifier of success? Don't think it drives success. Don't think it hurt. Yeah. I, yeah. That sounds reasonable. I um, I question how many people make their buying decision based on install size. How many people even know the install size when they buy? Mm. Yeah, on Steam, you can't find out until you hit the um, download button, right? I don't, don't think remember so. seeing it anywhere. Yeah, there could be, obviously, word of mouth is a thing, but um, I don't know. I it's kind of imagine it being the deal breaker for a lot of people. It's definitely, like, it's definitely been a... Um, when I was sort of first getting into Valheim, it was definitely something that I could say to be like, you know, yeah. we could play this this evening. Like, like Tom has written in his yeah. email, like, you yeah. know, we can, you know, this is not going to be something we have to leave for tomorrow or whatever. Like it's only a gig, but I, yeah, I don't think, I don't think that's where the, the viral success comes from necessarily, mm. but I think it's worth bearing in mind accelerant. And it's also genuinely refreshing. Yeah. I think that, I think that is important because, because each purchase is based on an event like, and and most of those events are going to be your friends saying, "We could do this now," and that is that is rare for for a lot of mm. um, yeah multiplayer games. And um, you know, I think yeah, that's such an important period moment. That was a pointless thing to say in the end there. <laughs> oh, I think more in terms of uh, <laughs> a. A potential negative they've avoided. Like, you know, we, I think we all know like GTA and Modern Warfare are big games, but most other stuff is not. I feel like most indie games are not huge. Like if I'm Deep Rock Galactic, I don't know exactly how big it is, but I bet if we wanted to play that in an hour's time, we could all have it. Yeah, it's smaller than you'd think it is, yeah. I remember that being bigger than I thought it is or smaller than I thought it was. <laughs> okay, Hang on, I need to find out how big it is. I think it's three I gigs, I think. It's two gig. Yeah, it was smaller than I All thought right, so it was going to be. Yeah, okay. Fine. Point stands. <laughs> <laughs> well then, the answer is maybe. maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Creating Good. robot well, souls another one, guys. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we're all very tired, and I think some of us are getting a little testy. 
so it might be bedtime. Time to wrap us in a towel. Mm, wrap us in a towel. <laughs> you have to switch us get... on, though, in the towel. That was the point, wasn't it? We have to, we have to shut this all down before Marsh displays his red ring. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Spicy. <laughs> That is all of the podcast uh, we've got time for. If you'd like to send us a question for future episodes of the podcast, you can do so by emailing us at questions at creightoncrowbar.com. You can find us on Twitter at creightoncrowbar. Our website at creightoncrowbar.com has a link to our Discord where people be and do chat. Uh, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters who make this possible. You can find out more about the Patreon at patreon.com forward slash creightoncrowbar. This episode and others much like it are available on YouTube with a picture, one frame of entertainment per episode, which you can find at youtube.com forward slash create and crowbar. I believe that's everything. I've been uh, Chris Thurston. I've been Marsh Davis. I've been Tom Francis. Mm. I've been Alex Wiltshire. Thanks. Bye. Bye. God. Wow. Getting more hellish each time.